0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to today's episode of the Professional Book Nerds Podcast presented by Overdrive. This is Jill. Welcome to January. Welcome to 2022. Here we are. Um, Today's episode is an interview I did with uh, Sochil Gonzalez about her new book, Olga Dies Dreaming. This is her debut, and it's phenomenal and is getting like all the things it's like getting talked about. It's just, we talk about this in the, in the interview. Um, but to have like your first book be this huge, big thing. And so Jill was so much fun to talk to. She's just delightful. And we talk about, Oh, dies dreaming. We talk about, um, sort of the real life world events that happen in the book that, um, had an impact on our culture and our society at large. We talk about this huge book coming out as your first and already being like optioned for television. Um, and yeah, so much fun, so much fun. So I'm very excited that this is our, our first interview of the new year. Um, if you want to get a hold of the podcast, you can go to our website, professionalbooknerds.com. We are on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at ProBookNerds. And you can email the podcast at professionalbooknerds at overdrive.com um, I think that's all I have for you today. If you listened to my very short episode on Thursday, you know that I have been sick. and So I'm recording this in advance and I'm still sick. Uh, <laughs> so... How about we not listen to my stick stuffy self anymore and we go listen to that awesome interview I did with Sochil Gonzalez on the Professional Book Nerds podcast. Sochil, thank you so much for coming on the podcast to chat with me. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here
1: and I'm excited to talk about Olga. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So can you start (laughs) by giving our listeners a brief introduction to Olga Olga Dies Dreaming. Yes. Okay. So Olga Dies
1: Dreaming is a family saga set in Brooklyn, New York in 2017. Um, And it centers around a New York family, uh, mainly the sister Olga, um, who we meet as a 40-year-old woman. um, And she's a wedding planner to the ultra-rich of Manhattan. And her brother is a U.S. congressman, Preto Acevedo. It's her older brother. And we learn that they were abandoned as children by their mother um, and left to be raised by their grandmother. Um, their parents had been young lords, which was like a sort of like a Black Panther power, like a Latino power movement of this, in the 70s. And um, their father ended up uh, falling into addiction, but their mother became radicalized after the movement ended and instead sort of left them to pursue um, like militant social justice causes. and. Uh, she kind of comes barreling back into their lives as uh, the as Maria Hurricane Maria descends upon Puerto Rico, and um, what really happens is that they they're seemingly successful adults despite this sort of childhood tragedy, but they've sort of just swept a lot of hurt feelings under the rug. And what the book is really about is what happens when we're forced to kind of, um, when the roosters, go, the, the chickens come home to roost, so to speak, and um, how you can go quite a long time without dealing with stuff, but eventually we all have to sort of confront our our demons. Um, sure
0: do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and I, I love the relationship between Olga and her brother. And as you said, you know, it, part of the book is they're both, they're older, they're trying to find themselves and be okay with you know, admitting who their authentic selves are and sharing that with the world, while still being burdened by these expectations of their mother, who they have not seen in decades. But it it really does showcase that that stuff still sticks with you. Oh no matter my gosh, what.
1: completely. I think it's like a really interesting thing. Like I don't even want to call them mother wounds, but mother ties. Right? And and one of the like, I mean, thematically bigger things is sort of like you know um, they are of Puerto Rican descent, grew up in New York, where there's like a very much, uh, what I would call a diasporic culture, like New Rican culture, which is like a very specific mix of like New Yorkiness and, um, and you know, like kind of like um, in things that we pulled from the island that we retained like uh, uh, generationally, but they both basically grew up in Brooklyn, right? And this mm-hmm. idea that they have this attachment to this place from which they descended and they're not as familiar with as kind of an equally uh, a parallel to how they feel about their mother where they have this attachment to this person that they've descended from but don't quite know um and it's uh, and it still has this sort of like looming impact on their lives and I do think like right, it's like a nature and nurture like how do we become the way that we are and how yeah. much of it is like are we bred into that and how much of it are we conditioned into that? Right. Like, and, and right.
0: Interesting. Right. Yeah. Right. And you know, you, it, it's interesting because, you know, the, we get to know their mom through these letters um, that are kind of interspersed throughout the book. Um, and I, I think you would use the word like looming and it, it is this like whole thing over their story and what is happening both in Puerto Rico at the time. Um, and, and, everything going on. So what was the decision behind having those letters kind of interspersed throughout the book?
1: Yeah, so, you know, um, I was inspired, I was inspired by this character, like, in two, twofold. One was personal, like, my, my mom and my dad met during the brown power movement, and mm. I was raised by my grandparents, my maternal grandparents, because my mother um, became very active in the socialist worker party, and, like, was sort of always, like, on the move, um, like, doing stuff with them, and so there was this idea of, like, what is it like to, I just thought that was kind of intriguing, like, what's it like to have been a child of somebody dedicated to like a big cause and then early on I you know I was kind of just like trying to think about what the aspects of like Puerto Rican culture I wanted to and history I wanted to hit on and I was rereading the story of um, this man named Filiberto Ojeda Rios who's in the book a little tiny bit but he was a real person and He like also was very um, concerned with like the independence of Puerto Rico and had some militant tactics towards it, but he left his kids and his family and lived in the mountains of Puerto Rico for 15 years and would just send the kids cassettes. Like, and he had like a whole network of people involved in his movement and they would tell him what his family was up to. And he would just send them these like audio cassettes, like like, almost like letters, just like notes. Mm -hmm. And I thought to myself, what if a woman did that? Like, I just thought like, it was like a radical thing to think of. Like, what if what if a woman did that? Like, it's like, you know, cause it's like when you hear a dad doing it, it doesn't sound as audacious. It's like, oh, but yeah. you still in touch with them. But like when you hear a mother doing it, it's like, but you didn't talk to her. She didn't show up. Like, you know, like, and I just sort of thought this one-sided communication was really um, a fascinating conceit. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so that was sort of where, that came from um yeah that's sort of where that that idea came from
0: that's interesting and something I hadn't necessarily considered is this idea of you know men when you know fathers I don't want to say like abandon their family versus when mothers do it but there is like a societal judgment that comes on the mother in a way it doesn't happen with the fathers
1: but also in the inverse one of the things that I also think is so interesting and like and it plays out a tiny bit in the book and it was like something that um in the adaptation like you see a little bit more but it's also the inverse when a father leaves a family people are like I'm sorry your dad did that when like if somebody says like oh, I don't talk to my mother. Like, nobody's like, what did she do? Like, it's always yeah. like, you don't talk to your mother. Like, it's like, there's this weird judgment, like, like, that, like you must be the flawed person, right? Instead of like, you know, like, and so it's like, oh, I don't really talk to my mother. It's like this feel of, of this, you know, I think, I think one of the things that I, um, when I was in the middle of revising the book, not writing it, like, but when I was revising it, what was the hardest thing to do was to actually access like total truth. And I had a friend send me this Toni Morrison interview that she'd um, done about Beloved. And um, this it's great. I, the greatest part about getting your MFA at Iowa is that your friends randomly have these like, sure. just like the appropriate <laughs> Toni Morrison quote for any writing dilemma, like they just sent it to you. But anyway, it was like at their fingertips. Um, I, I, the quote was literally about how the purpose of a novel is to pressure somebody to confront their feelings of shame or unworthiness and I had to like oh so what was definitely more present in the revision that I think is is in is in this book is um that there is she's really burdened by her own feelings of of shame and and some of that is shame from her mother and some of that is shame about her mother and what it is the idea of an identity of being abandoned like a circumstance that you didn't create for yourself but that you feel like somehow colors you um, and the way that people see you and so um yeah i think that that like that idea about mothers is such a big one i don't know we're like we're so linked whether we want to be or not yeah
0: let's <laughs>
1: leave it at that oh. <laughs> I'll,
0: come,
1: I'll come back
0: for the Mother's Day edition. It'll be great. No, <laughs> fantastic. Let's do it. <laughs> um so you mentioned that uh, the book is set in twenty seventeen You talk about hurricane maria um and it's it's interesting because there's this examination in the book between these ultra rich weddings that Olga is planning and then the economical struggles of Puerto Rico. Um, especially after the devastation of Hurricane Maria and Irma, and it it speaks a lot to the the classism and racism that is very prevalent in American society. Um, and so I was, I I know part of it is probably from your own background, but can you talk a bit about your decision to make Olga a wedding planner for these families, and the the decision to set it during this particular time?
1: Mm. Yeah. I mean, the decision to set it during this particular time almost came before I decided she was a wedding planner. Um, I, in fact, in the original, it, she's, she is a character started as something else. Like mm-hmm. it was like a bunch of tiny short stories that I realized were kind of about the same woman. And in the, the, adi- that iteration, she worked at an auction house, like an art auction house. Okay. I, like, you know, like she was still engaging with people of means, but like, it was like, I, I, you know, I was sort of, it was my first stabs at fiction because I'd started out working not writing nonfiction, and I, I wanted to purposely not make it so autobiographical, And um, but the the Maria thing was the thing that kind of pulled it together in a funny way because I was supposed to, when I was turning 40, I started writing when I turned 40. A month before I, my, my 40th birthday, my grandmother died, and she's my last living grandparent and my three grandparents raised me. Um, I'd spend the summers with my paternal grandmother and I'd spend the winters living with my maternal grandparents. And, um, and I was supposed to go to Puerto Rico the next month for my 40th birthday with my friends. And then mm-hmm. Irma, my birthday was smack between Irma and Maria. And so I already was very cognizant that there was very limited power on the island because of Irma. Because my hotel told me not to come, mm-hmm. and we and so I, I had already been very cognizant about Promesa and a lot of the fiscal crisis that the island was under. And then it was kind of like watching, like uh, it was like it was insane to me because I was so clearly aware of how bad this hurricane was going to be before it hit. And then everybody was like, "Who oh, no. knew?" Like, and I just couldn't get over the lack of care yeah. that I was seeing. And it was a bad hurricane season because it was the same year as Heartbeat. So I'd watched the response on the mainland states and then to see this quite opposite. And I very much remember the beauty of getting older is that like you remember so many things. I, I had gotten married like right after um, Hurricane Katrina so you have to start looking at these things and being like okay racism do you know like right. and yeah and, but but also I think what was upsetting to me was that I people didn't understand like the fiscal the, 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 people didn't understand the 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 actually like pull poli- colonial handcuffs on this island like that they already were paying tariff like they pay tariffs to get vegetables like the entire diet on the island is 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 been basically dictated by the jones act and so that like many of these things weren't waived and it's like you know it just was sort of terrible to see and i think beyond people watching it on the news and then that fading as a story i felt that i felt this desire to explain the way that this hurts a soul of a person that's tied to this place um and I was like well then maybe fiction is the right way to do that and then yeah. and then the wedding planning you know and then I was sort of like you know what like everybody understands weddings like I, I it's like, <laughs> like, like everybody like that's the simple thing for people to grasp like okay you plan weddings and then I had had that experience I, I, I planned weddings professionally for like 12 years I owned the business for like 15 and um and I, I sort of semi-retired before I actually fully that out, but, <laughs> but um, I worked with very, very extremely wealthy people. And, um, and it's just a really great way to talk about class. And yeah. I think just generally speaking, that has been a defining um, experience for one of the defining experiences of my life has been, you know, the gift of education was an amazing thing because it enabled me to like change my economic circumstances, but, but, you realize that a lot of people with in positions of power and with some economic autonomy don't have never lived that other experience. And so you can very easily, it's hard, it's hard to remember something you didn't don't understand. And so I think um, a privilege that I have is that I remember both experiences. And even as a business owner, I mean, I weathered a recession and I ate a lot of canned soup during that time. So, you know, like, it's like, I think just that is a part of the American experience is economic need and fret. And I think, um, I was interested, very deeply interested in writing about that aspect of living here. Right. And, and, and yeah. chasing and what materialism kind of is and means and does like to, to, to us and how that focuses our time and stuff like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah.
0: And now we'll take a quick break for word from this week's sponsor. Has this ever happened to you? You need to see a doctor like me right now sounding like this. But you search and you find one that looks good. You wait on hold to book an appointment. You rearrange your whole schedule. Maybe you have to take off work. And when you finally go in, you find out that doctor doesn't even take your insurance. And it's that time of year when insurance is changing. And it's just, it can be a whole thing. But there is a solution. Just download the free ZocDoc app. It's just the easiest way to find a great doctor and instantly book an appointment. With SockDoc, you can search for local doctors who take your insurance, read verified patient reviews, and book an appointment in person or video chat. Never wait on hold with a receptionist again. Whether you need a primary care physician, dentist, dermatologist, psychiatrist, eye doctor, or other specialist, SockDoc has you covered. SockDoc makes healthcare easy. Now is the time to prioritize your health. Go to ZocDoc.com ProBookNerds and download the ZocDoc app to sign up for free and book a top-rated doctor. Many are available as soon as today. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C.com slash ProBookNerds. Yeah, no, because it's so interesting. Because you, you know, as someone on the outside, you you see it happen all the time, um, where people have these incredibly lavish weddings, and you're just like, they're just like throwing money away. Like, what are they doing? And then you have something, and you know, and it's something that they have very deliberately done that is a choice they've made to like spend yeah. that money, and people judge them for it. And then you look at something like the devastation that happened to Puerto Rico, and people are like, well, they're just like in a way like almost that they've done this to themselves that they don't have the economical foundation and you're like that that's not how that works <laughs> That's exactly right.
1: It's not how that works at all. And it's like, it's like, so I think it's a funny, I, I mean, I, I should say this, like, I remember my grandmother when I was like very into wedding, my grandparents like lived through the recession. My grandmother was an orphan, like, it was like, like 10 kids living in one Brooklyn apartment, like, you know, like, like literally being raised by like a 16 year old. Like, it was like, like, it's like, like Dickensian. And she'd she's like, they're spending that much on a wedding. Like, she's like, like, they could buy a house with that money. And it's like, they have so many houses. Like, they have so yeah. many. Like, I think on the other side, people don't realize, like, it's like when you see somebody spent a million dollars on a wedding, it's because they've got so many other millions. Like, right, <laughs> right. Like, yes. it's like, but I do think it's, it, it is, um, there is an interesting, it's kind of like the mother thing. It's like, yes, we blame people about poverty. Like, it's like yes. there's a judgment around, um, a, 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 around poverty. And, and the funny part is, it's not even that there's a, a, the minimum wage in Puerto Rico is, is lower than it is on the mainland. Like, it's like, like there's so many, like the, the level of atrocities actually, like I, I it would, it's too, um, I really, on the one hand, I had things I wanted to discuss in this book. On the other hand, it was very important to me that it not come across as polemic um I you know it's like so if it starts to crowd the story or your awareness of the 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 Mm -hmm. story I I was like I'm not going to get into it's not a policy paper right like and I think um (laughs) you know and I think that I I had to slightly tone I don't even want to say tone it down but like you know there's more if this is intriguing to people and I think it should be I think if we are in a time where we care about social justice and voting rights and what does democracy mean, and the equity of the meaning of being an American, I think everyone should care about Puerto Rico because yes. quite literally, if you happen to, arbitrarily, we could acquire a piece of territory and decide like Texas is now suddenly the part of this and it's like, but now you can't vote for president. Like it's like, you know, like we should, uh, like this, the arbitrariness of it should disturb us all, like that like you're born in one place and now you're not quite a citizen like yeah. versus being born in another place, and that should really um that should fret we should feel fret about that, fraught about that, like we really should yeah
0: yeah and i <laughs> and I think no yes yes, <laughs> uh, but I think you know that that speaks to what you had said earlier about you know like using fiction as a way to open people's eyes to all of this in a way that maybe feels more accessible than a non-fiction book or a policy paper and um you know people will read this and probably see things or consider things they hadn't before within the context of everything surrounding Puerto Rico I
1: hope so I mean I think one of my fights so I got I didn't get my I got my MFA at like 42 okay so like the reason I talk about it I just like when I say that because I was—I like, just finished like I literally just got out of school but so I, I when I talk about school it's a fresh memory but one of mm-hmm. the fights I would debates we would have in at, at getting my MFA was that I was like we're artists we're supposed to have things to talk like we're making art like I think too often like novelists um novel writing story writing gets separated from other forms of art and um the best of art should be should have like some something to say do you know what I mean mm. like and, and and I think about um you know just really amazing films like if you think about like like just what Philadelphia did for like yeah. people, mm-hmm. like AIDS stigmatization, stigmatization like it's like like there have been there are these wonderful angels in america on broadway like like you know like there are these amazing do the right thing and like race relations and like, like i think there's these amazing moments um where art has had a seismic uh, ability to make people think about something in a little bit of a different way and so i just sort of felt like this was an ability like i i, I hope an occasion to use art to try to talk about this but that said I that that being said I would say that I'm really happy that it's finding this wider audience but I totally wrote it for like a Puerto Rican girl in Brooklyn oh sure I mean
0: (laughs) no I get that part
1: like, like it's like you know like I think um like I definitely like I had like a reader in mind and a very specific person and I was like I was like I'm writing this for my girlfriend Heather Ortiz you know, like, <laughs> like, but, um, I just think like that like I think it's really to just I don't know it can it's it's cool to think that like it's not just um stringing words together it's like is it just provocative you know like and I think part of it is like I will you know a lot of the characters have different takes on lots of things, as people do, like, you know, Prieto and Olga feel very differently about their mother, just even like, and their, and their father, like, and I yeah. think that's like it, and I think it's, we as a, as humans just have a myriad of opinions, and we're seeing, oh my god, are we not seeing that now, like, in this day and age, but like, I think it's to just say, like, there's not really one, there's many, many, many views of what what is happening in Puerto Rico and what should happen. And I think I wanted the, it to encompass as, like as many of those diverse sort of perspectives as it could.
0: Sure. And, you know, to that end, you, you tell the story through different point of views. Like it's not just Olga, um, not all of whom the point of views are particularly likable. And so, <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, like where, where did that decision come from to structure the book that way versus just having it told through Olga's point of view?
1: Yeah, um you know, I think I it's funny, it's like part of it was because I I had been I reread a bunch of books before mm-hmm. I started reading Olga and I reread one book that I was like I I, I think this I love it. It's one of my favorite books. And I don't want to say, but I don't want to say what it is and then say what I think you should have done differently. But like, Got it. But I, I remembered thinking that it involved two characters of two different races. And I remember thinking this would have been a better book had he given the other character a POV. Because then that gives them more agency. And I mm-hmm. think because Olga and her brother were both going through such in, like intense things, I wanted to give them their own space for those experiences to be valid and not have it be observed like trauma that the other person is like taking in. And I thought it was important to get their mother's POV. She's the only, because their letters, she's the only first person POV. Yeah. And then, and then ultimately I, I didn't actually have a lot of debate, but I remember in, uh, cause I workshop part of the book in Iowa, there being debate about whether or not Dick, her lover should have a POV. And I never debated that because my feeling was that it's, in many ways Olga is symbolic of Puerto Rico and she is like sort of like semi-controlled by forces beyond her control until the end like and she takes some agency over life and I thought it was very important that there is like um, you know somebody with power that has like some say in the lives of these characters that but- that, you know is somewhat detached from the amount of power that they have and like and and I think that in in a lot of ways that's kind of representative of how Puerto Rico sits in this yeah. situation and um and that that character happens to be a white guy isn't coincidental yeah. like you know But right, like, I think right. like, <laughs> I, like it was just I think it's it's important because um you know I, I mean if you I think there's a point where she says like the, the Blanca Blanca's I I actually I don't want to say she's my favorite character, I, but what I like about Blanca, she's not, but what I like about Blanca is that she's a little bit wrong and a little bit right always. Mm-hmm. And she has this one thing where she's like, this was not a game that you were like, you weren't, the game is rigged for you to lose kind of. And I, think yeah. what I, I liked about the dick thing is that sometimes you don't even know the stuff that's going on. Do you know what I mean? Like that, is, and, and I think that we were seeing that. It was more made more transparent, I think, in the last like um, in political administration because we would catch wind of like meetings that were happening where like these mm-hmm. crazy decisions were getting made, and you're like, oh, okay. Like, I remember, like I was already like m- very well into the book, and I was like, this is starting to make this not seem like very hard to believe. like I, remember, like, I was like. <laughs> uh- I was like this is actually feels very like total like I was like suddenly this doesn't feel like fantastical like it feels completely within the realm of things because we were sort of seeing power yeah. and power being manipulated in a very transparent way and so I think that that was part of why I wanted to make sure to keep um, that POV in there and and I also think like you know I think one of the things and this might be too long of an answer but you'll edit it if it is but like one of the things that I've had the experience of being Like a a very white passable Latina, and I, I'm very often invited into rooms of Mm. to be on boards, to sit in on committees, and I hear what people really say because they forget I'm there. I think I'm invited in because that people, you know, it's like I think that's and that was something that I definitely had happened for Olga and I, um, like where somebody had asked me in a discussion, like uh, a discussion about why did I make her brother, the darker skin one and her, the lighter skin one. And I could have made it uh, like, I could have said something by the reverse, but I was like, but what I've seen reflected in reality is that when there are calls to Pat, like of groups of power and there are Latinos there, it's always the lightest skinned, whitest looking Latinos that get invited into those spaces. And I thought, felt that it felt true to what I know as a, as a, a Latino woman that, it she's ends up at the private school and he ends up at the state school yeah. and like he ends up in public life where the, a form where he can excel and be who he is and she ends up in this sort of like strange nebulous like you know kind of like luxury service world and I um I just thought that that was co- like I think that that was cognizant and I, I kind of wanted to give in a funny way insight like Everything, like, you know, all of the, the dick stuff is stuff that I've more or less heard other people say, just tied together, you know, it's like you're yeah. together. And when they forget that you're looking or they don't realize that it's going to be offensive. And, um, and I think that that is another form of, um, you know, sort of like performance that, that, that she has to, to do and he has to do. They're both kind of conditioned to be performers in a lot yeah. of ways. Yeah. yeah.
0: Well, um, speaking of performers, that was actually a terrible transition, but we're going to go with it. So (laughs) I feel like we have to talk about the TV show because as, you know, a writer, as a debut writer, nonetheless, what is it like to have your book option and in production before like it's even published? (laughs) Oh my gosh.
1: Well, okay. What I can say is that (laughs) I, what I can say is that because it was my first book, I don't know a different version of the experience. So, so, but. I what it's done is that it's made me love the book more because the book is like pure, if that mm-hmm. makes sense. I don't actually I want to say like what what happened was, again, good things about doing things when you get older like originally I just read something about Elena Ferrante because I guess she has well, one of her books is being uh, made by yes. Maggie Gyllenhaal and she was like I that's Maggie Gyllenhaal's project I don't want to have anything to do with it And like she'd written like an op-ed about it and I was like yeah not me like I was like I want to micromanage the crap out of this like no <laughs> I, I what I I felt is that I knew that I was this is a very specific world. Like I'm, I'm like holding the book now. I was like, people can't yeah. see that I'm holding the book. Um, <laughs> it's a very specific world. It's a world that I know very few people know because I don't encounter many people that know South, South Brooklyn, such a specific culture New York in such a specific culture. Like that. I was like, yeah, no, like who's going to do it. Like I was like, like and, and I'm part Mexican. American and like I you know they sent me like three screenwriters that were Mexican American and I was like, again yeah, different universe different universe yeah, not the yeah. same not not the same at all and I was like yeah no I was like if they don't want me to be involved and I don't want to work on it with them like I was like I, I what I did know was that I had some power a tiny mm-hmm. tiny bit of power because the book hadn't even come out yet and so I was like well we can just wait and see yeah, how it does yeah. and if it does really well people will still want it you know like and so um I was like so let's just Hold out and then we'll just do it on the terms that feel good. And then I ended up ironically w- partnering with a Mexican-American director um, who's amazing, Alfonso Gomez de Leon. But uh, he's like the most brilliant person. He had done me an early yes. dying girl. Yes. yes. And um, and the book just spoke to him. And we had all the same favorite books. Like we like got on a phone call and I was like, I was like we have to do something about this together. And then when Hulu called, I was like, well, I want to do it with you if you let me do it with Alfonso. And they already loved him. So Mm -hmm. it kind of worked out well. What was great actually was that I, it sounds chaotic, but I think it was really good. I was working on the, I, while I was waiting to start revisions I, with, with my editor, Megan Lynch at Flatiron, I was working on what they call a series bible for the show, which is like where you break down who all the characters are and what's gonna happen in each episode. And having to explain to strangers who these characters are made me really go back in. And especially with Prieto like I, the greatest revisions from the version that's sold to the version that people will get to read it was in how his real estate is, how much real estate he has, and in his story and his interiority and that journey. And I am so, I w- it was really edif- edifying for me to like have to break down somebody that I kind of gut instinctively knew and like have to like describe this person to strangers that were like, "Yeah, hey, I don't have the- <laughs> typical very LA, I don't have the time to read this book. Could you like give <laughs> <laughs> right. me you know like it's so um." So I found it really helpful. I think what I would say is that then once we moved into production, I just sort of had to somewhat put my hands up and be like, this is now a collaborative project, like, and like Olga that I hope people see, we'll find out next year, early next year, like about the series, but, you know, Olga is part my words. Part Alfonso's vision, part Aubrey Plaza's like interpretation. And it's a collaboration. And then, and it was great. Like there'd be some weird lines like she'd like riff, like in like doing, and I was like, that's even better than what I could have written. Like, (laughs) you know, like, you're like, that's great. Like that's so perfectly Olga. And this is this is this person. Like now, and I'm I imagine as it goes on their ownership of that, like, you know, Arabo Rodriguez plays, oh my God, plays, oh, uh, plays Panetto. He is like, like I don't, I don't know. Like I can't now. Like I now see he's so embodies it. Like Laz Um we weren't. I for some reason we didn't announce this, but like Laz Alonzo plays Reggie King, and it was like the most beautiful thing to like. It was a, it was so beautiful because he's such an activist for Cuba, and to hear him like, and he never gets to play. He always gets cast as a African American yeah, character, yeah. and it was like, and it was so great for him to like. It was so great to have created this space for him to then be uh, play a play character so similar to who he actually uh, how he identifies himself. And that was just a really beautiful, cool thing. So I think I just started to see it as like like theater, you know, I mean, which yeah. is kind of is like very expensive, expensive theater. But um, you know, I think I was like the book lives as the book and that's its own art form. And I think this is a different art form. And so um, and I've just been trying to have some fun with it. And honestly, like it's actually like the production aspect of it is a lot like planning weddings. To be totally <laughs> Nobody like like if you want to see people on a Zoom like get like just depressed, it's like tell them that you, like what they do for a living is a lot like wedding planning. Well, actually, what I said was <laughs> what, I, what I said was I was like honestly, this is a lot less stressful than planning weddings because they were like, "Are you so stressed out? It's your first show. Nobody's in this position." And I was like, honestly, it's a lot less stressful than planning weddings because nobody's going to personally sue me. I was like, oh God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I, like there's a thing in the book where she says like somebody got sued because they substituted like an, an Ecuadorian rose for an English rose. That really happens. That legit happened. So like I, when I say like you would show up on a set like imagine waking up. You hope in a good year, thirty Saturdays out of the year. Yeah. And you're like I hope I end this without getting sued. <laughs> like that's a very stressful job like...
0: <laughs> for sure for sure yeah that is <laughs> oh, yeah I mean having planned my own I can't imagine trying to that plan somebody else's a weird yeah.
1: sidebar about television but anyway <laughs> like, TV more stressful than planning weddings so no, that's the headline like it's like um, Bye. it's not as it, it's fun in a different way but it's there's nothing more satisfying for me, I think, because I was a write a reader for you, I, and I always say like I was a commuter reader, so it's like I would give up. I'm like, if I like on Goodreads, like I would probably, I'm not very good about tracking things like Goodreads, but I would have a DT, a D, did not finish. What is it, DNF? Like list. Yeah. Because I'm like, I'm not schlepping this book back and forth to the city. It's not good. Like, and I'd move on. Like, it's like, so I really was like, I want to write a readable book. Like, but that same feeling when you get so lost in an awesome novel like where you're like I don't want it to end and I I'm I'm in this place and I'm in a strange place is the same feeling that I have when I'm writing and that is like there's nothing like it and so like and writing prose in particular and so like I definitely um yeah I of course I I definitely I enjoyed the process but like I was sort of like I want to go back and be writing another book in isolation in Iowa in my pajamas for five (laughs) days I was like (laughs) I uh, novelists, I think, love the pandemic. Like, you know, it's terrible to say, like, it's like, like, it's really like, I just don't have to make
0: excuses to not go out anymore. That's sort of nice. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. For sure. (laughs) Well, I, I've had so much fun talking to you. I just have one question left, which is what do you hope readers take away from Olga Dies Dreaming? Oh,
1: but it's such a good question. I hope
0: that readers take away
1: that we're resilient like we humans are resilient and are it's never too late to like it's never too late to solve old wounds or to find love or to love yourself and I hope that that that's the ultimate takeaway yeah 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 it's really I think about resilience so
0: love it so chill. thank you so much for coming on the podcast
1: thank you for having me this is a lot of fun
0: Readers can sample and borrow the titles mentioned in today's episode on Overdrive.com, and our library friends can purchase these titles in Marketplace. Professional Book Nerds is proud to be an Evergreen Podcast signature program. To learn about other Evergreen podcasts, visit evergreenpodcasts.com. Our podcast is produced, recorded, and edited by Jill Grudenwald and presented by Overdrive. To learn more, visit professionalbooknerds.com.